You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel, streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app. Welcome to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC Sports, brought to you by JohnnyTShirt.com, the go-to provider for all your Tar Heel gear. For Inside Carolina, I'm Taylor Vipolis, and you're listening to this podcast, which is a part of the Inside Carolina Podcast Network. So first off, thank you for being here. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Inside Carolina wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube so you never miss any of the content our team at IC puts out. It hardly takes any time, and it helps us out a lot. Also, speaking of support, we want to support the people that support us, so that's why I've got to remind everybody about Johnny T-Shirt. Johnny T-Shirt is the go-to shop for all things Carolina apparel. They've got your football jerseys, the T-shirts, the hats. And as the weather gets cooler, even though I'm not sure it's going to get cool at this point, it's about 70 degrees in November right now in Carolina. Uh, they've got all the Carolina hoodies and jackets you could ever want. They've been serving the UNC fans since 1983 on Franklin Street with the best prices and the best customer service because they're locally owned and operated by alumni. You can visit them right on Franklin Street or go to johnnytshirt.com and don't forget Inside Carolina premium subscribers save 10% off their orders. All right, let's get to it. As always, I'm joined by my fellow Carolina football lettermen, Mike Ingersoll and EJ Wilson. Guys, Carolina absolutely whoops up on Duke winning 56 to 24 to keep the victory bell. Mike, we'll start with you. What were your what were your general takeaways from this game? Uh, I thought pass protection was substantially better. Um, Sam had plenty of time to make his reads and take deep shots. Um, Duke is surprisingly struggling. Um, I thought they'd be better this year. I thought Chase Bryce was going to play better than he currently is. Um, So I'm surprised at how poorly Duke is playing. And it's not like they just have a bad record. Um, You know, I thought Virginia was potentially better maybe than the record showed, Um, though maybe not much. Florida State, obviously, substantially more talented than their record would indicate, um, just on a you know man-to-man level uh, going down that roster. But Duke is not that kind of team, um, and they've shown it just from their production. You know, that game was 42 to nothing at halftime, you know, for us you know, this past weekend. So um, kind of more of a tune-up game, I would say. Um, I just wish that we'd seen that kind of production two other times this season. <laughs> EJ, what about you? What were your uh, biggest takeaways? Uh, my biggest takeaways were that we cut out some of the big plays. We we did still allow some of the big plays that allowed them to get some momentum, but for the most part, I mean, we completely took away their big plays and and, and allowed us to play our style of football. Um, I, I, I do, and I see it every game, and we talk about it every week on this podcast. I really don't – we don't play terrible football when we're not getting penalized or we're not giving up big plays. The problem is it happens so much. I mean, people are playing out of position. People aren't making tackles. Um, it, it just kind of hurts to see. But uh, Saturday, 
they came out, and, and I'm starting to think that we just play well against in-state teams. I mean, we played well against North Carolina State. We played well against Duke, and I apologize for saying that name on the air. I meant that school in Raleigh. Um, so <laughs> and we just play well against Trigger them. warning. Exactly. So I, I really do think it goes back to our conversation that we had early on in the season about what does it take for these guys to get better um, with tackling. And it really is an emotional thing. I mean, these guys were obviously up for this game, and you can tell because they dominated from the beginning to the end of the game. I feel like, yeah, we did give up a few points, but all in all, I think it was a solid uh, performance. And I do think that we adjusted well. Um, um, as you see, they, they took their quarterback out and put in a more dual-threat quarterback because, as everyone in the country knows, we don't go out of running a more mobile quarterback very well. But he, they were come, able to come in and move the ball a little bit. But I think all in all, we pretty much contained him. Um, on the way to a, a great defensive game. And also, we got a lot of the young guys involved, and that's something that we really needed to do. We need to start developing developing true depth, not just having a number of guys behind your starter, but having guys that can go in and not have to worry about the play dropping off. So I was really impressed with what I saw out of some of those young guys this week. Yeah, that was a good point about the rivalries. Caroline is now 4-0 against those two teams since Mac Brown has been back. And if Javante Williams doesn't fumble against Duke last year, those are four games that pretty much weren't really that close or uh, could have been even worse than the scores indicate. But in terms of this game, I don't think – my biggest takeaway was I don't think we learned that much about this Carolina team beating up on a bad Duke team. Um, with the offense, you have guys like Michael Carter and Javante Williams. They're going to go off seemingly every game. And then – you have a guy – I think for what I did learn, I guess, is that Emory Simmons on offense is just going to continue to develop and continue to build a stronger connection with Sam, with Sam Howell. So that was what I wanted to make sure I mentioned from the offensive side. But defensively, I think it's still a group that gets penalized a little too much. Um, they lose their, their gap control in the run defense. But they did force four turnovers. You look at Day-Day Simmons um, – Day Day Holland's interception, and then Jeremiah Gemmel forcing a fumble that Chad Surratt recovered. Then they stopped Duke uh, going for it on fourth down twice. So I think it was a good, uh, a good overall performance from this team. But I don't know how much of it you could really take moving forward with teams like Notre Dame and like Miami still on the schedule. Um, so that was my biggest takeaway. But. Mike, I feel like we have to start with Michael Carter and Javante Williams because there really doesn't feel like there's anywhere else to start. It's it's two running backs that are probably easily top 10 running backs in all of college football. They combined for over 300 total yards of offense on Saturday against Duke. How fun would those two be for an offensive lineman and getting the chance to block for them? Well, the – the, the biggest thing that I see with these guys, and you hear the announcers talk about it a lot, but what really does show up on film is their patience. Um, so they allow everything in front of them to develop before they actually make a decision and hit a hole. Um, they, they let their um, – what essentially as an offensive lineman, what they do is they set up blocks for us. So the way a block gets set up is back is behind you, defender. He can see the defender. I can't see where the back is behind me, right? But he can see the defender who's in front of me. He knows which way he wants me to block that guy. So what he'll do is he'll set up that defender. He'll lean or pressure to one side, right, behind me. Defender's watching him, obviously, right? And then he'll make that defender commit to either my right or my left. And then I'm just going to take him wherever I want to go, particularly like in the inside zone 
um, inside zone schemes or outside zone schemes, right? So I'm, if I'm up on the second level, um, or even if we're out wide, you know, if we're, if we're running a, um, like a jet sweep or something like that, or, you know, something, um, something quick as, you know, a zombie, a zombie route, um, to the back, which is essentially just an extension of the run. You know, some people call it a flare route to the back. Um, they're going to, they're really good at setting up blocks, both for the offensive linemen and for the receivers. And then they just let the, their blocker in front of them, take the guy wherever he wants to go. And they, we call that, you know, making, making the blocker right. Right. They may, they make me right as, as an offensive lineman more times than not um, just by making my life easy. And, and that's a function, a byproduct of their patience um, as runners. And you can really see it on film, right? I mean, we, and we have a, our offensive line is doing a much better job now I think than we were at the beginning of the season particularly this weekend against Duke I saw because I was looking for it specifically um, of getting up on the second level in your double teams they were getting good movement at the point of attack on the first level and they were moving the their defensive line assignment into their second second level assignment into their linebacker assignments um, and and all that does is just it, it moves the line of scrimmage obviously but it allows guys like Javante and Michael Carter to do what they're good at which is be patient and let the play develop in front of them and then they just break it and sometimes breaking a run is not a 25 or 30 yard scamper sometimes breaking a run depending on the call think power or a gap scheme um, breaking a run is six or seven yards on first down or second down um, that's you know that that's huge that gets you ahead of we call it ahead of schedule in your down and distance. Um, and those guys have, have done a great job of letting things develop in front of them so that they can't break those plays, six, seven, 10, 12 yards in a power scheme, um, gap scheme plays, and then, you know, ultimately wearing on a defense and allowing that to become a big chunk play on the ground, which is just, EJ, I'll tell you, you know, you get two or three, you know, you snap off two or three huge runs, you know, explosive 25, 20 yard runs. I mean, that's, that's a backbreaker for a defense. And, and they've done a great job of putting themselves in a position and putting the offense in a position to be able to do that this season. Duke was no exception. Yeah. I feel like those two are so good and they still don't really get the, the praise and recognition that they truly deserve in this offense. Cause they're out of basketball school. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, that's it, right? Yeah. That's, that's, that's it. They're they're It's the school they're at. And, you know, we were we were in the national limelight early on, the spotlight line, you know, early on, and then we kind of fell off. So there was a lot of talk about is it time to take North Carolina seriously, and then we lay an egg against Florida State. But then we were still ranked, and maybe, you know, maybe that was a fluke. And then we lay another egg in prime time against another one win team in Virginia, and nobody's taking us seriously anymore. Which again is what I meant last week by pressures off. Right? There's really no expectations anymore at this point, except to just continue to improve. Um, but the reason why those guys aren't getting the pub is because we laid two eggs in prime time um, with a national ranking, one of those being a top five national ranking. So, Yeah, it's also a case where I think Carolina fans have to enjoy these two for the remaining three games and a bowl game while they still can because <laughs> – Yeah, they're gone. <laughs> those two are about to get paid um, just just off of this season and all the positive positives they've done. I think I think it was – Javon, one of Javante Williams four touchdowns on the day Jason Staples um, did a film breakdown where it was basically just like a power concept with uh, Montalus I think Montalus was the left guard who was pulling mm -hmm. and kind of opening that hole and yep. when you see the offensive line playing that well and you're giving Javante the ball with him being able to get you know 15 yards downfield before he even has to make somebody miss and then he just bowls over everybody 
on the goal line for the touchdown. And then it's, it's also a case where a guy like Michael Carter, he kind of gets this reputation as the lightning back in this offense. But you, you have a case like Javante Williams being able to outrun a bunch of people. You have a case like Michael Carter running people over at the goal line. It's a case where these guys can really do it all in this offense, it feels like. But EJ, uh, a positive along those same lines for the defense was the contributions you got from the young guys on this Carolina defense, like you mentioned in your uh, beginning takeaways. Uh, Miles Murphy, I thought he had a great game. Uh, Des Evans, I thought he had a great game. Now, it's, it's in limited snaps or not as many snaps maybe as some people would like to see, but it is your, the future of this defensive line in action now. So what did you kind of see from Murphy and Des Evans that should get Carolina fans excited for the future? Well, for Murphy, I mean, you see a guy out there pretty much dominating as a freshman, playing literally with one hand tied behind his back. How can you not be impressed by that? And, I mean, yes, his number helps him stand out some a little bit. I mean, we got to do something about that next season. But, I mean, the dude is just impressive. I mean, I think he's lived up, from what I've seen, in a kind of a small sample space that we said, I've seen – him be as advertised. I think he's going to be a load in the middle for us. I think once his hand gets healthy, he gets another year of, of, of this experience and he kind of knows what he's looking at and knows what he needs to do to fine tune his body and his game. I definitely think that he's going to be a great one for us. And I mean, you can combine him with Bo Havoc and everything he's been doing in the middle of that defense this year. I mean, you're talking about a deadly D line and moving even further than that. I got, I got a spotlight my, my young boy from back home um, in Virginia, Chris Collins. Um, this kid came to college. I think he was about 220 pounds soaking wet. Now you go out there, you're seeing this 6'5", 240-pound kid who couldn't couldn't play the run last year. Now he's setting the edge. He's getting active in the pass rush game. So those two really excite me the most because that's the future of our defensive line. And the defensive line is where defense starts. I mean, you combine that with, with, with the Fox, with, with Tamari. You combine that with Ray. And then you got Miles coming off. And then you have another pass rusher slash edge setter with Chris Collins. I think it's going to be great. Um, and another person that stood out to me was Kimon Rucker. Um, I have on the um, – I think it was the last – the second to last drive of the game. Um, I said, Let, this would be a good time to really see what these young guys are about. I saw him do something that you don't see many line, young linebackers do and something I kind of been harping on Chaz about, and that's using his hands and being violent and shedding the block. Um, he shed the block, I mean, and, and made plays. And I think a, a few plays later, the confidence that he had for that play allowed him to make a big play in a tackle for loss. So those three guys really stood out to me. And, and all of the young guys that really played, as you mentioned, uh, Des Evans, um, Cam Kelly even came back, had some uh, big pass deflections. He was caught out of position sometimes. But all in all, I think he's he's improving. He's getting better. And that's really all that you can ask, especially with, with some guys that we're having getting – thrown right into the middle of this situation. But I'm very optimistic about, about the future of our, um, our program, especially um, defensively, because, I mean, you see Jeremiah Gimmel out there making plays. You see everybody making plays who are supposed to make plays on Saturday. And then you have the young guys coming in and say, well, hey, don't forget about us. We've been, I mean, we, we work hard just like you guys. Let us show you what you can, what we can do. And I think I saw that. So I think moving forward, I, I don't 
think it necessarily needs to be a blowout game to see some of those guys. I think you should start mixing these guys in early and often. I mean, do what uh, our coaching staff did with Quentin Copels uh, and, and Marvin Austin. I mean, he put those guys in on the second play of the game when they didn't expect they were going to play to the second half. And luckily, those guys adjusted well to it. And because of that, they were always alert, always ready, and they started to pay attention to the game from the sideline in a different way because they literally never know, uh, never knew when they were going to go get in. So I think that we need to see to see more of this. And I mean, hey, and if we're only going to see him when it's a blowout, that's more motivation for our defensive starters to go in, set the tone, um, stop, shut these guys down, let our offense score fifty to sixty points like we can do every week, and let's get these guys in the game. So I mean, I, I was very happy and impressed with what I saw from the young players. You mentioned wanting the defense to play violently with their hands, but you look mm-hmm. at a guy like Miles Murphy breaks his hand, Clyde Pinder breaks his hand. Is is this something wise to be telling people, or, or is Carolina just going to be coming out with clubs in their hands every game? Well, I mean, the clubs honestly wouldn't be a bad idea to be in lower position you're playing, but and and I think you're starting to see some of these guys with these hand injuries because these coaches are enforcing to play with your hands, and it's it's something to get used to. I mean, even as a defensive lineman, um, when I first got to college, I mean, I had bruised up hands. Um, my first training camp in Tampa, I played with the club on because I mean, those things happen. I mean. It, so, I mean, you, you, you're going to – it's either the point where you're going to play great football and maybe risk banging yourself up a little bit more, or you're going to go out there and half – I don't know what the rating level is – and half it out there and probably end up getting yourself hurt anyway from, from dragging ass or getting rolled up on a lineman or something like that. So, I would rather encourage the guys to go out there and play the right way because you're less likely to get hurt. But, I mean, if, if you hurt your hand and your wrist, wrap it up. We still can play. So you're not getting any manicures during the off days is what you're trying to tell me? Oh, no, not, not at all. More so like hand massages and acupuncture. <laughs> but, EJ, staying with you, I think the secondary, you mentioned Camp Kelly. They also deserve credit from Saturday um, from guys like Patrice Rene setting the edge. Uh, Cam Kelly, like you mentioned, had a nice pass breakup. Trey Morrison had a couple pass breakups. Day-Day Hollins had the – Day-Day Hollins had the interception. It, football, it, we always hear about the next man up mentality, but how impressive of a job has it been by Dre Bly to always have that next defensive back ready? It's crazy impressive. It's to the point now where I'm watching the game and I'll be watching it the whole time and didn't realize that there was a different player in there because of the level of play is the same for better or for worse, but the level of the, of, of the play is the same. And But I think Saturday we saw a way better performance because we got Patrice Renee back. I mean, he instantly made an impact. He was out there. I mean, not, not just pass breakups. I mean, this guy's getting tackled for losses. He's setting the edge. He's playing tough and physical. And I think some of those younger guys came in and they saw him play and it kind of encouraged them because they knew that they had that leadership back and a guy they could fall on. They knew they had someone out there that if he was in a position to help them correct them with their positioning or their pre-play reads, then that would happen. And I think that's why you saw a better game from some of those younger guys. And and I think that's going to be the the really important part. We Patrice has to be healthy because, I mean, it's a different defense when he's out there. It's like he affects every level. And, and that's kind of what, what me and Mike talk about sometimes about these emotional leaders and having those guys out there it's not necessarily that they're going to come back and I mean you hear stories in the NFL all the time where players get hurt and they come back and they lead their team to great games 
you don't hear about these players breaking records or anything. It's the emotional, it's the emotional aspect of it. It's your players knowing and your teammates knowing that even though you were down, you're going to get what you can to fight and be out there with them. And just that little spark can kind of change the course of some teams sometimes. So hopefully him being back and being in the lineup will, will kind of keep the good times flowing. Just like, as you mentioned, cut down on some of these penalties and some of these big plays. I think we put ourselves in a better position to win and, when we're talking about schools like Notre Dame, I mean, that bad gap control, that's not a five, seven yard gain with them. That's a 20, 20, 25 yard gain or a touchdown because yeah, I mean, that's, a, you're, that's a jailbreak. Yeah. Oh, exactly. You're playing we're, we're, no, no disrespect to Duke, but I mean, this is a different caliber of talent we're going to be playing. And if we want to compete and be who we say we are, I mean, we've done all this great Mac is back all this great publicity for the team, but we need to go out and show and prove. I mean, Mike mentioned the pressure is off, but that doesn't mean we can't st- just can't keep grinding and surprising people. Yeah, I think it's crazy when you look at Carolina's secondary for basically the second year in a row. You look at who the secondary was when this season started. Miles Wofolk off the team. Mm-hmm. Don Chapman missed Saturday. Storm Duck missed Saturday. Uh, Kyler McMichael missed Saturday. It's, it's really a plug-and-play right now for Dre Bly, and I think it speaks a lot to – um, the level of confidence he kind of instills in his position room and just the level of confidence that Jay Bateman kind of uh, has in this entire defense. But, um, Mike, Duke was a team that came in averaging somewhere near like four sacks, like right under four sacks a game mm-hmm. with a stout defensive line. Carolina, for the most part, whether it was, you know, how how Phil Longo called the offense with the RPOs, um, maybe keeping a guy like Garrett Walson back in, in protection. They, they really held a, a pretty good Duke defensive line in check. What was your overall assessment for how the offensive line played? Well, I think aside from the offensive line, you just brought up a good um, – you brought up somebody I want to talk about, which was, um, which was Garrett Walson. He had a, I thought he had, from a blocking perspective, I thought he had a much better game than he's had – you know, the last few weeks. Um, he, he's, he's, he's been re- – he was relatively consistent early in the season. He had a couple of games of some drop-off, um, but I thought that he really rebounded well, and he, 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 was a, he was an asset in the run game and in the pass game from a blocking perspective against Duke. And, uh, and I'm glad you brought that up because I think he deserves, he deserves some credit. You know, with tight ends, you know, you think catches, 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 um, but you never think about what's actually, you know, a good, all, you know, well-rounded, complete tight end, what he offers to the offense and other areas too, particularly blocking both, you know, when he's, when he's out in space, like in the slot and he's blocking, you know, he's, he's blocking smaller, quicker guys in space or he's on the end of the line and he's providing sort of H-back support. Um, you know, setting edges and, and helping with double teams with, with his tackles. You know, I, I think that I think Walston did a, a very good job this weekend and deserves a lot of credit there. The offensive line generally looked pretty good. You're right. Um, Sam had yeah, had a pocket when he you know when he needed it for the most part. Um, I, I thought what they did was they were they were better in their individual assignments, which throughout this whole season I haven't really thought individual one-on-one assignments have been the the issue for Carolina. I thought the offensive line's issues. Um, whether it's schematically or it's, you know, just a personnel issue. Um, I thought, I thought that their problems were, you know, dealing with uh, certain pressures and, um, and com- and combination rushes, not one-on-one situations. Um, and I thought they handled all that much better against Duke. Um, you know, they came out, like EJ said, they came out offensively on a mission, right? They wanted, they wanted to set a tone. They want to score some points. They wanted to blow the doors off of Duke, and they did that. Um, what's frustrating is that you see how well and how cleanly 
this team can play offensively, um, how many how 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 many points they can put up and how easily they can put up points when they want to, as long as they execute, which shows me that the only thing that's really beating our offense is our offense, um, that they can do virtually whatever they want when they want to, um, even with bad protection, um, even with breakdowns, right, in your, in your route responsibilities, um, even with, you know, getting stuffed a little bit in the run game like they did against Virginia. Um, you know, they can – this offense is still capable of putting up 40 points whenever they want. Um, this weekend against Duke, though, I thought was, uh, you know, that, that exhibition took place in the first half. And they really just kind of opened up the can in the first half and did really whatever they wanted to do. And I think that a lot of that was because Sam was so clean back there in the pocket. Um, you know, Sam, I've said all season long, has had a real problem with holding onto the ball a little too long. I, I think that the one detriment from him not getting a ton of pressure this weekend was we don't know if he's actually improved on that, right? Or if he was still in his head, his clock was running a little long because he just had all day back there to throw the ball, you know, really whenever he wanted to. Um, so I, he's going to see some teams here coming up, you know, Miami, Notre Dame, where he's going to have pressure. And we're going to know if that, if he's fixed that clock problem in his head um, or you know, maybe it's not a clock problem. You know, the other potential issue we flagged is that maybe he's just trying to force things. We'll see if he's corrected that issue himself. But I think the offensive line, for the most part, um, protected him well and put some good stuff on film uh, going into next week. They should be confident um, that they've got a combination of guys that can really rotate in and out and play in different spots. Again, you know, Josh Azudu was playing left tackle. Um, he's played right tackle. Uh, you know, I've seen him in there at guard, you know, and they switch guys around. Monolith has been in and out. Um, really the only guy that doesn't ever move is Brian Anderson. Um, but all those guys have shown versatility and shown that they can be plugged into different spots. And it looks like now, you know, and again, we don't know how bad Duke really is, right? But at least what I saw on the film was that those guys are now getting comfortable playing with each other in different combinations, right? Different, different guards playing next to different tackles. Um, you know, they're, they're getting comfortable. It doesn't really matter who they have next to each other. They all have a rapport. That's important from a depth perspective. Um, you know, with injuries, with COVID, you kind of have to build that. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if the reason we've seen that rotation throughout this season is to make sure that enough guys in that offensive line depth have experience, have, games, have game reps in the event that somebody goes down with COVID unexpectedly and they got to plug someone in. I think that's most likely why you've been seeing that um, because in, and again, under normal circumstances in a normal year, you, I don't think you'd see so much O-line rotation that looked like it all melded together against Duke. Um, and there aren't really the headaches that I was seeing early in the season. You know, what I'm interested to see is how do we carry that forward, you know, particularly against teams that are of the caliber defensively of Miami, Notre Dame. Mike, sticking with you, at Phil Longo's press conference on Monday, he said that the team's offensive leaders are Michael Carter, Sam Howell, and Brian Anderson. And I don't think anybody would be surprised hearing Howell or Carter, but Anderson, I think, would surprise some people. From what you've seen, how important is Anderson to that offensive line and just the offense overall? Well, I mean, I'll give a guy a shout-out that really never got a ton of pub, and that's Scott Linehan, Tank. Um, tank was, you know, this is going back to the, you know, Godfather Chacos, um, uh, 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 Arthur, um, uh, Arthur Smith and, you know, OC for the Titans. Now, um, you know, those offensive lines tank was our center back then. Um, Garrett Reynolds, Kyle Jolly, those dudes tank was an unsung hero. Um, he was a smaller guy, um, but he was scrappy, right? Um, he was the, 
he, he was the absolute leader of that offensive line when he was our center. Um, your center typically is. Cam Holland is another guy who doesn't get a, enough credit. Um, you know, Lowell Dyer, another guy, doesn't get enough credit um, for the leadership that, that they displayed. And a lot of those, you know, each of those guys had a different way of going about it. Um, but what made them so valuable was their consistency, right? Sometimes they'd get beat you know, in their physical assignments, but they never got beat in their mental assignments. We always knew that those guys were able to put us where we needed to be. They knew what was going on around them. They knew what our responsibilities were, right? And they could, they could direct traffic in there if needed. So we never had to worry about them busting mentally. Um, again, they might've got beat physically here and there, but, but in terms of their mental assignments, their understanding of the game plan, their understanding of what we were trying to do and their understanding of the assignments and the responsibilities of the guys that were playing next to, uh, we never had to worry about that. That is a huge relief for an offensive line because your center is the guy that's supposed to direct traffic. Um, Brian Anderson is that guy. Just like those other guys I mentioned, he gets beat once in a while on his physical assignments, but I don't see him getting beat mentally. He seems to understand what's going on for the most part, um, you know, every single game. And now, I've, you know, we talked about last week against Virginia with Zane Zandier and all the green dogging that I saw. I don't necessarily put that, you know, on Brian, despite some of that stuff coming over top of him, right? Some of that stuff is just Virginia, UVA had a good game plan. You know, they saw a, um, they saw a vulnerability in our protection schemes, right? And in our, in our protection responsibilities, and they exploited it. I don't necessarily know that that's a Brian problem. I think that's a unit problem. Um, I don't, I wasn't on the field, you know, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if Brian saw some of that stuff happening and just wasn't in a position to pass something off, right? because the guard wasn't there or because we hadn't schemed for it. Um, so Brian is a guy that he has game experience, right? He's been out there for a couple of years now, we, you know, and he's a known entity. He's a known quantity. We know what we're getting from him. It's not going to be super flashy, but he's good. He knows where his assignment is more times than not. He's going to get to his assignment, right? But more importantly, he knows what your assignment is. And as an offensive line with that guy in there directing the show, that's invaluable. Um, that's why a guy like Brian Anderson is included, you know, in, in, in a list of guys that includes, you know, Sam Howell and Michael Carter on offense. Um, you know, what you normally see is people assume leadership, people assume production and leadership uh, go hand in hand. And that's not necessarily the case. There's a lot of guys, Antonio Brown, right? Phenomenally productive for their careers. I don't think anybody would call Antonio Brown a leader, right? In college or high school, he might have been the best player on his team, and maybe he was thrust into a leadership role for that reason, right? But, you know, you see – and I use him as an example, but there's – you know, every team's got an Antonio Brown where he's the best player on the team, you know, athletically and physically, right, and from a production standpoint. But he maybe not necessarily the best from a leadership standpoint. Brian Anderson is a guy who's relatively unsung. Um, he is consistent. He's a rock there in the middle. And, again – just because you're a leader doesn't mean you don't get beat. Doesn't mean you don't lose your one-on-one -on -one assignments every once in a while. That happens to Brian. But again, that's a guy that when I watch him play, I know he knows what he's supposed to do. And I know he knows what the guys around him are supposed to do. So he's essentially a coach on the field. That kind of thing is, is, is priceless for an offense. Yeah. Hearing some of the names that you mentioned at center from your playing days and just thinking, you know, since then Carolina's had a run of guys like Russell Bodine, um, Lucas Crowley, now Brian Anderson, to a point where they've had a really good run with guys at center. And I think the funny thing with Anderson, it's it's almost like every preseason people are like, oh, look out for this person at center. We're going to challenge Anderson 
Anderson's spot or Carolina has a young guy at center to challenge Anderson. And every week it's Brian Anderson starting at center because he's the most reliable, most consistent option every week at center. But EJ, um, switching back to defense, we talked about this a little off camera, but I wanted to get your opinion on Chaz Surratt because I think his struggles and I'm using struggles in air quotes for anybody who's listening. They're somewhat overblown because to me, it reminds me of the situation with Trey Boston, where when he was at UNC, he's the best player on the defense. So it looks like he can be out of position um, when he's really just covering for other defensive mistakes or the defensive line losing gap control. And the reason why I wanted to ask this because on Carolina's long defense, I mean, on the long uh, rush Carolina gave up, in my head, my first thought was that wasn't Chaz's fault because of how wide open that gap was and just putting him in a bad spot. And I went to the game thread, which I, I wouldn't really recommend doing on the Inside Carolina message boards, and everybody's like, bleep Chaz Surratt, Chaz Surratt, overrated, all this, all that. So I think there's, there is a disconnect there between some fans and expectations. I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on Chaz Surratt this season. Uh, yeah, definitely. And, and as we spoke about the play that you broke down, I think was a great example of that. Um, there was just bad communication. And then on defense, if, if, if there's no communication, if you don't know what you're doing, you're dead in the water. I mean, if it, it looks, I think that we have such a high expectation of Chad simply because he's always around the ball. So we're expecting him to make every play. And because when Chad is around the ball, sometimes making up for other people or he gets there late or it seems like he's chasing down someone, it's mostly because, like you said, he's making up for other people. On the long run this past weekend, I it's – I really – that's one of those ones I kind of need to know what the call was because what I saw, um, I saw the offensive lineman climb up um, from a double team up to the B-gap. Chaz didn't attack the block like he should have, but it looks like the guy's running right down Chaz's gap, and that wasn't so. Whoever that – I forget who the defensive lineman was because I was cursing so loudly on that play, but – it was it's his job when you're running a, more than that type of front. It's your job to keep those linebackers clean. It's your job to do what Ray does. You need to knock that offensive line and that you're over back so far that the double team doesn't even make sense. They're either going to have to hold you. They're either going to have to block you in the back. And Mike can attest to this. If, if you get a guy, the guy who's setting the point or, or posting in that double team, if he gets dominated, dominated, that double team is over. And I don't think we held up on that double team well enough. Chaz was dead in the water before he could even diagnose the play. The offensive lineman was on top of him so I mean it, it's hard to do anything like that and I, I I will admit I have been unfairly harsh on Chaz it's simply because I expect so much from him um and I think that's what has happened to a lot of other people but schematically when I think when you grade him out when you when you judge his effort and some of his physicality I do think that he's having a, a good season not as great as he had last year because I think uh, most most teams are playing know that he's he's our strongest defensive player, and they try to na- um, neutralize him as much as they can. But well, I think Chaz has probably put some expectations on himself too. Exactly, and a little bit of that. Exactly, and you can see that when he plays. I mean, he's so. I, I say sometimes he looks like he's not hustling to the ball, but when you rewind that game, rewind that game film, he just chased down a play twenty yards down the field on the other side to make up for one of his teammates, one of the young guys who maybe was out of place, missed a tackle or something like that. So I think that. All in all, when, when fans are, in that, are analyzing Chaz, you need to take his whole body of work. You can't just look at the plays that he's missing. You have to look at everything else that he's doing for the defense. He's helping people get lined up. He's making sure we're in the right calls. He's looking for checks. He's diagnosing the defense. And honestly, for some of the things that he's done, knowing that all things on his plate, 
I think that makes it more impressive. But, I mean, of course, I mean, this is the best guy on the team, the best guy defensively we have on the team. So, of course, as fans, as, as coaches, as teammates, we're always going to ask more from him. And I think that's going to be one of those things where after the season, no matter where we end up, I think you're going to look back at his play and really appreciate what he did. And I think the NFL scouts would do that, do the same. And hopefully we'll have another year from him. But I don't think anyone on this call thinks he's going to be back next year. Yeah. I mean, one th- one other thing, too, that you didn't mention that Chaz brings to that defense is he brings the tension, right? Yeah. So he brings – Chaz is game plan for. Mm-hmm. You know, this is – you know, you hear fans talk all the time about, well, you know, we got a game plan for this guy. we got a double team, triple team this guy. You know, a lot, of, a lot of times that's not necessarily the case, right? It's just, you know, our game, our game plan is to go out there and play our – we're going to play our game. And if this star player happens to get in the way, he happens to get in the way. You know, a guy like Daquan Bowers, for example, was game planned for. A guy like Chaz is game planned for. Um, you know, they, they are running either, you know, whenever, whenever the players run to Chaz, it's for a reason, right? They're, they've seen stuff on film. They're trying to set Chaz up, you know, to miss something. But what all that, what that does too, right? Because a lot of, a lot of times they're running away from Chaz. They're trying to neutralize Chaz, right? What that does is it creates opportunities for other defensive players to make plays, right? It puts them in a position to be the one making the play for better, for worse. Um, so, you know, that's the other thing that Chaz brings to a defense or brings to the defense, is that offensive teams are having to, or offensive coordinators rather, are having to actually game plan for this guy, right? Which is taking attention away from something else. Now, you know, what's the benefit of that? Well, when you've got, you know, when you've got a dog defense that can sit there and everybody, everybody can play, everybody can tackle, um, you know, everybody's, in, everybody's where they're supposed to be, right? And they're taking care of their assignments. It makes it really hard to play, you know, to move the ball against a defense like that. Um, because even though you've, even though you've taken their, best player out of the equation everybody else can pick up the slack the struggles we've seen now are when Chaz gets neutralized or put in a position that they know he's going to be a lot of control right the other guys aren't haven't been able to at least this up to this point make up that slack mm-hmm. no, I agree with you 100 percent, and I do um thank you for bringing that up because I mean that that is a very valid point I think about my senior year when I had the benefit of playing on the other side of the line <laughs> of scrimmage from Robert Quinn who I think is the probably the third best defensive lineman to ever play at Carolina. And, and that's about only behind Lawrence Taylor and Pep. And you, I mean, oh. <laughs> but let me seriously, like, I mean, when, when, and the, the thing was, it was, it made it harder to game plan against us because Rob's strength was pass rushing. My strength was playing the run. But the thing is, if you try to run it at me, I'm going to set the point. Rob's running a four or five. He's going to chase it down. If you try to run it, if you try to double team Rob, I mean, I was capable enough to at least get some quarterback pressure in there, but it does make a difference. So I think that, I think that guys like uh, Jeremiah Gimmel, um, Taman Fox, uh, young guy Chris Collins, Miles Murphy, uh, Mr. Vo Habit, guys like that need to step up and kind of start picking up some of the slack where Chaz can't get because, I mean, he can't be everywhere all the time, but he damn sure tries. For a local pro example, think back to the Panthers when they had Julius Peppers and Mike Rucker, right? Mm-hmm. Mike Rucker made Pro Bowls because Julius Peppers was on the other side of that line. Mike Rucker was a great player in his own right, right? But Julius Peppers was drawing a lot of attention. Pep was doing his own thing over there. Despite those double teams, he was setting himself up for a Hall of Fame career. But mm-hmm. that Panthers defense back, if you think, the what was that, the 2003 Super Bowl they made mm-hmm. it to? For a couple of years there with Chris Jenkins, uh, Brenson Buckner was the other defensive tackle, and then they had Pep. Rucker on the outside right that defensive line benefited because there was so much attention on pep right but you had three other pro bowlers on that d line i don't know that they all would have chris jenkins was a was a manimal that dude was always going to be good right 
But when you've got one guy like that, right, that teams have the game plan for, again, it presents opportunities for other guys. That Panthers team, right, for the, some of the older fans that remember that defense, the best defense in the NFL for two or three straight years, mm-hmm. um, that Panthers team, that Panthers defense was better because Julius Peppers was drawing so much attention. He got three other guys to Pro Bowls just from being on the field himself and just from teams having a game plan for him. So there, there are transcendent players, right? Um, you know, there are, there, there are critical players um, that draw attention and that, you know, that ultimately make teams better, just, you know, process of elimination. Um, addition by subtraction, I should say. As they're getting subtracted from the play, they're adding opportunities for other guys. Yeah, I think uh, the case with Chaz Surratt is interesting because Jay Bateman kind of said it best, like, a lot of people are expecting him to like go in a phone booth and come out as Superman and make every play. And I think it's, I think Chaz expects that too. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a case that he's the best and most consistent player on a defense that's average to below average on, you know, in some situations this year. And when the defense does have a sound game, he's going to look amazing like Saturday, like the NC state game, where he leads the team. He had 12 tackles against Duke, zero missed tackles. Um, But to close the podcast, I wanted to end with this question for both of you guys. Uh, Mike, focusing on the offense, where do you think this offense can still improve the most, in your opinion, these last three three games plus a bowl game? Uh, Middle pressure. Um, So blitz pickup right down the the middle. Um, That's going to be when when they line up against Notre Dame and they line up against – Miami, that's where the pressure is going to come from. Uh, We've had virtually no problem picking up outside pressure. Um, It's right up the middle. You know, again, it's what turns into a five or maybe at most a six-man rush. Um, We've had some real issues with that up the middle, Uh, particularly, again, like we saw against Virginia. You're going to see Green Dog, and you're going to see, uh, you know, noses crossing faces of Brian Anderson there at center, and they're just going to eat him up, and you're going to see middle linebackers start to Green Dog when that back flares out. Um, you know, and their responsibility leads, you're just, you're going to see that. And until we put it on film that we can stop it, you're going to continue to see it. So my biggest thing would be, you know, watch interior pressure, um, single man blitzes, AB blitzes, cross dogs right there in the middle. Um, Shugs, right. Running a, you know, a, a Sam linebacker to an under G look, um, G being a two eye on the other side, right. So sort of exotic fronts, um, but running a single blitzer behind it has really given us headaches for some reason. And I'm not, entirely sure why again my theory is it's just it's a schematic issue it's it's a jimmy's and joe's issue or it's a x's and o's issue not a jimmy's and joe's issue so um, i would continue to look for that expect to see that on film if we manage to shut it down against um you know against one of these you know er, earlier then we'll stop seeing it later in in the season and into the bowl game Um, but if we don't shut it down here immediately we're going to continue to see it. it's going to continue to have his problems and it's going to, going to continue to risk the health of our all world quarterback who thinks he has to make every single play on the field. And maybe, you know, maybe in inside pressure is why. EJ, same question for you. Where can this defense improve the most still? Gap integrity, man. I mean, I think other than penalties, I think gap integrity solves a lot of our problems. I mean, I think we're pretty sound sometimes, but we get lazy because you'll see us consistently play the run, consistently play the run, 15-yard run, short run, short run, 15-yard run. And I mean, even with some of the 
And you think about the mobile quarterback, that's definitely where the gap integrity needs to be at its best because if that quarter, I mean, quarterbacks can escape from all different angles. I mean, you have the, the traditional guys that is going to escape outside, but then you have some of the guys, the newer guys like the, who are more like Russell Wilson and Kyler Murray who, who are short guys who act can escape through the middle so we need to know where we're supposed to be we need to when we're past rushing we need to be cognizant of this we can't we can't if we're supposed to rush b gap we can't be in the a gap because that creates a lane because your defensive end is rushing in the c i mean that's a wide open lane for that quarterback so i mean in, in the run game the pass everything i think gap integrity is is should be the basis of defense but it's something that we're struggling with so until we can get that down packed you're going to continue to see the big gashing run plays you're going to continue to see quarterbacks escape from the pockets and you're going to consider to continue to see these design quarterback runs that seem to hurt us so much so until we get a sound gap and I know we run a lot of exotic looks and a lot of exotic defenses and pressure so we have guys coming from everywhere I mean we could have a cornerback that has the opposite b gap I mean who knows with this scheme but you have to know that I mean even in one thing my coaches always told me at every level I've been at we're not blitzing to get a sack we're still blitzing to stop the run so you have to blitz with your run integrity or you'll get gashed so I mean gap integrity is the big thing for this defense both good points to end on. Carolina back at home at Keenan this Saturday against Wake Forest. It's a noon kickoff. UNC undefeated at home this year, 3-0. Undefeated at noon kickoffs, 5-0. and Guys, looking forward to talking about it next week. Completely defeated in prime time. Thank God. <laughs> thank, God it's a new, thank God it's a noon kickoff. I it, thought it, I'd never say that. And it's an in-state game, so maybe we'll blow them out again. Oh, yeah. Good. <laughs> we're, we're back to winning state championships. That's, oh, that's yeah. Our goal. <laughs> 2020 is saying thank God for noon kickoffs. Yes, it is. (laughs) Thanks for listening to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com. Brought to you by JohnnyTShirt.com. Where to go for your next Tar Heel gear purchase.